Welcome to Identity Matters, digital identity and the evolution of the internet, a special InnovationOz.com video podcast series brought to you by Ping Identity. From debating access to anonymity issues in online culture wars to fighting cyber threats on the commercial internet or in the delivery of government services, identity impacts everyone. In this series, we will speak to a compelling list of experts to trace the global online trends that have helped frame digital identity and to understand the cyber landscape shifts that have shaped identity access management practices and zero-trust environments. Join us as we explore the philosophical and practical sides of identity, the fundamental issue at the heart of the internet. Hello and welcome to Identity Matters, Digital Identity and the Evolution of the Internet. To kick off this six-part series, I'm talking today with Andre Durant, the founder and global CEO of Ping Identity. Uh, welcome, Andre. Great to be here, James. But we're going to be talking all things internet, uh, sorry, all things identity today. I wonder if I can start by asking you, just in 2002, when you when you kicked off the the Ping Identity journey, what what was the very basic problem you were trying to solve, and how has that problem changed over time? It's a giant question. It's a big question. I'll try to keep it short. I had a personal observation where devices were kind of driven to network and that all of their utility once networked, all of their prior utility just disappeared. And all of the utility was essentially around them being a networked device versus a not networked device. And it was my first experience having a Novell network. You know, I was perfectly happy with my PC without a Novell network. And then we got a Novell network. And one day the Novell network went down and we all pretty much said, let's go play Frisbee. And about maybe six, eight months later, we connected our Novell network to the internet and the internet went down and we pretty much said, let's just all go play Frisbee. And so it was just odd to me that, you know, my computer was perfectly productive without Novell. And then we got a local area network. And when the network went down, like my PC was somehow useless. And then we had a Novell network. And when we connected to the internet, when the internet went down, all of a sudden my PC was useless and the Novell network was useless. So there was this observation that networking is a one-way street. And what manifests from that train of thought was this notion that, hey, if all of our devices are driven to network, it should be possible at some future point that if my device is lost or stolen, I can just shut it off. Basically was find my iPhone. But I realized that there was no way to like connect a user to a device if you didn't know the identity of the user and you didn't know the identity of the device. We were all kind of inherently anonymous by default on the internet. And that basically, that train of thought ultimately led to the notion that everything needs to be identified. Okay, I want to jump in there because... Like one of the fun facts I came across when I was doing a bit of uh, reading for this podcast series was that uh, New Yorker cartoon turns 30 this year, that cartoon where two dogs sitting at a computer and one says on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. So 30 years ago, I guess that makes it 1993, uh, we were talking about identity, but 
in a weird kind of way or talking specifically about the problem that you just identified. Yep. Well, I mean, the opposite is now true. Everyone knows you're a dog and what breed and what you had yesterday, right? That, That's that right. creates its own privacy challenges. But no, you're right. So really what it was saying was that the internet in the beginning was anonymous by default. And now we're moving to a point in time where you're identified by default and it comes with it all of its related privacy issues. But certainly a lot has changed in the last 30 years. Now we've recognized that we can't secure what we can't identify. And if we don't really care about the trustworthiness of transactions in the online or digital world, then who cares if you're a dog? But if we care and there's financial liability associated with transacting online, then we better know if you're a dog or something or someone else. And so, yes, as it's very natural that as the use of the internet went from research to essentially the foundation of all commerce and digital economies, that we would need to secure the interactions to enable the trust of commerce at true global internet scale. It's not just, we're not just interacting with people we know, we're interacting with people we don't know, and that's the point. So we must identify everything if we're going to secure this new digital platform. So identity access management is born, I, I guess, based on, on that description. Well, it was born, you know, it was born before we got involved, but it just wasn't internet scale. We had identity and identity management, call it at enterprise scale, but we didn't have it at internet scale. And it's really internet scale that we were transforming the notions of identity. So there we had to build standards, all the standards that make up identity. It's really the TCP IP stack of identity had to get created in order for us to scale identity use cases globally. So just as a as a brief descriptive, where are we now? Because it, it seems like I know identity and cybersecurity aren't you know, they're not interchangeable terms, but they're so inter they're pretty interchangeable. Well, they're so interrelated. They're, they're so interrelated. Yeah. So yeah. Our, our, our the way we manage identity and the security of identity has evolved, you know, at light speed, and yet we don't feel necessarily more secure. Is that a is is that a harsh way to look at it? It's not at all a harsh way to look at it. So, you know, we had plenty of uh, we we had plenty of ways to secure what we were attempting to secure with, I'll say, with lesser identity. And so the notion there was put everything of value in a place that you control, and essentially erect a big wall or firewall between it and the outside. So there's the inside and the outside. There's the known and the unknown. There's the trusted and the presumed untrusted, and between it's a wall. And over the course of the last 10, 15 years, combination of mobile phones on one end and cloud on the other, right? So users followed the mobile phone off the corporate network and off corporately issued devices, and corporations followed the cloud to basically shift the workloads, right, out of their data centers to the cloud. So now you had users on non-employee uh, issued devices, in some cases, doing work, and you had workloads outside of the data center where you controlled everything. So now what? So really, the 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 shift in compute as shift moved from being kind of centralized and protected and all controlled to being now inherently more distributed, we needed a new way to reconnect who should have access to what. 
and you could not presume that you trust the network or the user or the devices that they were coming in on. All of those things were kind of more trusted when they were all in one place. And so it was inevitable that more emphasis or shift towards the identity control plane was going to occur as this decentralization was occurring. Now, it accelerated through COVID. And both cloud acceleration and mobile adoption have both accelerated, basically putting the spotlight, if you will, on the identity control. So what has essentially happened is we went from kind of firewalls being the perimeter or a network, really, it's our network being the perimeter to now being the user's authentication or really the user's identity is now the new perimeter. And as a result of that, as you say, identity is being attacked more than Mm -hmm. ever because your authentication taking control of your account is the new way in. That's the door to kick down, which is why all the attacks now, or many of the attacks are propagated at essentially getting your account, getting your identity. Yeah. That's, and then leveraging to get in. The technology issue is never really solved because it continues to evolve. But the, the human element, I mean, I'm not even sure if that is something that can be solved. But talk me through that. Well, so, yeah, I was going to say where the 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 challenges of technology, they never go away. They just shift, right? So they manifest over here and then, you know, they, they move and we're always kind of like constantly evolving, creating new challenges with technology and then new solutions with the same technology. So great example would be AI. Like it's a little bit like nuclear, you know, nuclear, you can create nuclear weapons, which are bad. You can create nuclear power, which is good. You've got AI now, which can be leveraged to see abnormal behavior, which is good. And you've got AI that can basically clone your voice, which is like cloning your biometric, which is bad. And so, you know, we're constantly kind of moving out the envelope, creating problems and solving them many times with the same exact tech. But the human part, which you're saying, which is kind of the constant here, we're kind of in the middle of the technology shift. And uh, and you're right, it is consistent. We, or at least that side of the uh, equation is consistent. But even we ourselves, what we expect out of the technology and how we leverage the technology, that is always shifting and kind of progressing with the technology, right? We, we learn not to trust all emails. That's right. Over time. I- for example, I can see a lot of parallels here with the with the financial services industry or the banking industry. I, I guess I wonder this. Is, I don't know if this is left field or not, but um, you know, in all major corporations have to do audits of their of their books once a year. It's a snapshot in time. Um, do you think there's room for literally cyber audits of companies that are? you know, a, a regulated mechanism where there is a snapshot in time of a, of a company or an organization's um, cybersecurity, you know, sophistication, if you like. I mean, to an extent, we have it in certain industries around the globe. Um, and there's all sorts of opt-in self-certification that takes place in the security world to varying degrees of, you know, success. Um I do think the auditors have taken note of the identity control plane and the access control rights at any moment in time. So well, in terms of their to financial that, audits. Well, I'm just I'm just making a parallel of what you said was financially auditing 
at a moment in time a company's cleanliness and accuracy of their books, and I'm applying it now to regulatory audits of the security posture, cybersecurity posture with respect to identity. And to some degree, we do have that. We do have auditors taking a look at the access rights and privileges and usage with a company to say, does a company have adequate controls over who has access to what, especially sensitive information, like in the US SOX, financial reporting and other information, who has access to the books, who can change the books, who has the rights to change a general ledger you know, item? And can you prove to me that that user you know, has uh, invoked that privilege or has not used that privilege? And you know, does that make yeah. sense? So we're heading, we're heading down that direction. Okay. And then the other parallel would be from at an individual level, everyone knows that they, you know, you keep your credit card safe, you, you know, don't tell people your PIN number, all of that kind of thing. Seems seems a little bit extraordinary to me that we would still need awareness campaigns around cyber. Surely we're, surely we're already past that, are we? We're clearly not past it. And what you know, or secrets as a method of authentication are pretty embedded right? In how all of these networks get accessed. Replacing it's not been easy. Um, We do have new methods now that leverage the biometric capabilities of our embedded platforms to quote unquote recognize us without asking us a secret. So when you do a face ID, for example, it's a method of recognizing our authenticity, if you will, and essentially authenticating ourselves to some application or session without asking us anything looking at us, recognizes us, and there's a certain level of authenticity associated with that. And we have that capability now. It's fairly ubiquitous embedded in our mobile phones. But, you know, five, 10 years ago, we didn't, right? So we've progressed a long ways. It's going to take a little while for the newer methods of ensuring authentication and authenticity um, can be leveraged in all of these, you know, somewhat antiquated systems. And we have millions of Mm. them to basically... Uh, modernize, if that makes sense. But there are methods to do it. Now, then again, those are being attacked. So recognizing you through voice now with AI, and that wasn't as widely used, but it was used here and there as one factor of authentication is essentially a biometric called your voice. And now that can be mimicked. Can I ask you, uh, without trying to overblow the statement, there does seem you know, we, we live in a uh, slightly more fractured world now. There, there is a, a little bit more geostrategic competition and those uh, kinds of things. We have a war in Ukraine. We have, you, you know, these, these um, you know, these issues are real across geopolitical blocks. What does that mean for identity? Does it mean anything? How does, how does a company like Ping respond to that global environment? We don't have a commonly agreed to global notion of identity. And frankly, I'm kind of okay with that. Um, The legal definition of your identity is, in many cases, the rights and purview of the sovereign nations and the government institutions that essentially bless you with an identity that society recognizes in a legal construct. And there's lots of different ways in which that identity is granted and recognized by different nations. Um, We will have to find ways in which our identity is interoperable, the same way a passport creates a legal representation of us 
in jurisdictions that, say, the U.S. government doesn't control, for example. We have a federation of identities as manifest by this concept of a passport, where identity is um, essentially to attested to by one government and recognized by another. Uh, and I'm okay with that. There's a there's a certain level of um, maybe check and balance. Uh, different governments take different views on their role in that, how, say, forceful they are, that you need to have one of these things issued by them, and it's the only way in which you can do anything within their kind of jurisdiction, if that makes sense. Um, so there isn't one size fits all. Different cultures have different levels of trust of their government and bestow that government with different lo- different authority and power over them with respect to identity. You go to countries like India and, you know, they've taken three different biometric markers, if you will, from everyone in yeah. India, right? And in the U.S., I think that would be a hard thing to do. Now, we opt into it to a certain degree through Clear and TSA and other services that we use. We opt to give over our biometrics in the pursuit of a more friction-free, you know what I mean, uh, entry into different things like airports and entering the country, if you will. I mean, Global Entry has my fingerprints and they also have my facial biometric. And you'll notice when you go through a lot of Global Entry things now, they don't even ask you to insert your uh, insert your passport. They don't even read the chip. Like they take a photo and you're in. So your face is your token now. Quite quite incredible, isn't you know? it? It's sort of amazing how, uh, I mean, you know, obviously cultures are different, but how different cultures have applied cultural norms to a digital identity environment yes. and, and to a very deep level. Absolutely. And like I said, there's, a lot to be gained by getting the root of trust, which is your identity, both physically and digitally, um, into a common framework that all of society can essentially layer on top of or pile on top of. Certain cultures will accept that. They're more accepting of government and other ones are less accepting of that. So you've got to find ways to achieve the same goal in a much more fragmented way. And for example, U.S. is that, right? We're a federation of states and states have the requirement to essentially identify you. And if I move between a state, I need to get a new license issued by that state, not by my prior state. Now, the states recognize each other's identification. But if you live there, uh, you're supposed to get a new license issued by that state. And they have to verify you and vet you in all the ways that the prior states did. So yeah, look, it's just different around the globe, different levels of trust of government. We have to make identity systems work with all of them. Yeah, it's uh, certainly it's a fast-moving space. I'm talking to Andre Durand, the global chief executive and co-founder, oh, sorry, founder at uh, Ping Identity. Uh, look, I want to, let's just change it up a little bit. Um, just in terms of identity use cases, what, is there a sector that really does this stuff incredibly well? Um, uh, and, and where do, you know where are the opportunities for you of sectors that are probably not doing it really well right now? Well, we break up our world into the use case, and so employees engaging with their employers to get the job done. We call that a workforce use case or employee use case. 
And there it's about ensuring, you know, a high level of security that only the right employees can gain access to whatever the information is the company is trying to protect. Um, but while, while, while experience matters, security matters a little bit more. When you go over to the customer consumer use case, friction is everything. Now, you don't want to be a company that doesn't secure your customer's personal information. You don't want to be that company. You also can't be the company that is so secure that no one can do business with you because customers and consumers have a lot of choice and you measure the distance between you and your closest competitor in keystrokes and milliseconds, not miles. So frictionless experiences are really, really important. So are being recognized and having personalized experiences. If you're a loyal customer, you want to be recognized as being a loyal customer. And just because a company has five brands and for different reasons, they all have five different identity systems, customers don't care. If they want to buy a service from you, they would like a singular experience for how they engage with you. And so the expectations are different between these two. In terms of who does it really well, I would say you will find highly competitive industries who are forced to do this really well, do it really well. <laughs> so, so I would uh, highly regulated financial, ser financial services, telecommunications, all these kinds of companies. They're, they're very competitive. On the one end, they're regulated, which means they take the role of your security and privacy seriously because they get fined if they don't do that well. And on the other end, customers and consumers have a lot of choice. So you better provide a secure and friction-free experience if you if you want to survive and thrive in the digital first era. Okay, I wanted to ask you just a, a business question to finish up, I guess. Um, after 20 years, uh, sorry, a 20-year run at Ping Identity, um, the company was uh, acquired or taken private last year. Uh, just, I'm interested to know what, you can do as a private company that was more difficult as a public company and and perhaps vice versa and then what are you doing in the you know what what's the plan for the kind of short medium term what's getting you excited what are you focused on well let me take the first one so public markets you need to be smooth and predictable which is fantastic right i mean you can run a good company when companies are under transition transition doesn't always make them predictable and sometimes you don't want the transition to necessarily be smooth. You want it to be fast. So we were undergoing a cloud and SaaS transformation. It's hard to be smooth and predictable always when you're going. If it goes too fast, you get hurt. If it goes too slow, you get punished. Does that yeah. make sense? And so when you're under transformation, better to do that privately and then come out as you're hitting the straightaway. That makes sense. And so we were shifting from kind of a single product and a single use case to now a platform that was cloud delivered, focus on an emerging space called the customer. Better to figure all that out and experiment and do that privately and get the formula right and then come back out at a later time, as I said, when you're hitting the gas and in the straightaway. That's part number one. Part number two was that hard to say what was going to happen in the macro environment, fair to say there was plenty of clouds on the horizon. And I would 
much rather play offense privately than defense publicly. And so private does offer you an opportunity to do things um, under the right PE ownership that is harder to do when you're a public company. So part of it was the cap table. Part of it was um, being private where you could make the changes that you needed to make and you could do it quickly. You didn't have to be smooth. In terms of what gets me excited here, I'm probably more excited 20 years later than I was when I started the company. I know a lot more and the space is extremely, extremely interesting right now and changing in ways that I think are going to be profound and leave their mark on the industry for many decades. So one of those is that for the last 50 years, our digital identity has been managed by other people, other companies. Your digital identity is very fragmented. Really, it, it's, the, it's the aggregate of all the accounts you have with all the companies you do business with, publicly and privately. We're now on the verge of where you can leverage your mobile phone as an identity wallet to collect and store your digital identity in your control. And then when people want to know something about you, you don't have to tell them to go talk to somebody else. You can simply say, here, let me share something about me with you. And those relying parties can verify the authenticity of those credentials. We call them digital credentials. You can now store digital credentials on your mobile phone. You can unlock them and use them with your face, with your biometric. Nobody else can. So this is your personal wallet, your locker to store your personal identity information that you could then choose where, when, and how to share it. It's a better model of privacy. It gives users control over their identity that they haven't had in the past. And it's actually going to improve the user experience in several interactions while improving trust and security at the same time. We haven't seen that level of opportunity in the history of identity because mobile phones with biometrics and secure enclaves that were always connected had to become ubiquitous. And they have over the course of the last 10 years. So we're there. And all of a sudden, we can unlock a new model of identity that puts users in the center. And that's exciting. All right, Andre Durant, thank you very much for joining us. It, uh, you do paint a pretty exciting uh, picture of, of the future. And I guess, you know, uh, I guess mobile phones as wallets, we've always kind of seen, seen it coming. But yeah, it's certainly when it arrived, it arrived fast. Right around the corner. Thanks very much for being on the show. Thank you, James. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Identity Matters, digital identity and the evolution of the internet video podcast series brought to you by Ping Identity. For more, keep tuning in to innovationoz.com forward slash podcasts or visit pingidentity.com. 